Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens, uh, especially if you're new or visiting for the first time, really want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving here as the lead pastor of our church. Um, as many of you know, that, I mean, this morning, um, you were probably like me. I woke up and just saw the big headline that Israel declares war. And um, it's just, um, on days like this, it's, it's strange to um, come and, and um, go on business as usual. Um, and it's not lost on me that I think sometimes um, here in L.A., um, just we feel so sheltered from the things that are happening uh, all around the world. And um, as we open up God's word today, I just want to remind us that when we gather um, on Sundays, we're not necessarily escaping from reality as much as we're declaring ultimate reality. That as we open up God's word um, we're not saying that we're, we're going to just block out the noise of everything happening because right now, at this very moment, there are hundreds of lives being lost. Um, there is a war that is raging um, that absolutely impacts us because it impacts our fellow brothers and sisters. Um, but as we open up God's word, we're reminded that God is on the throne, that God is in charge, and that God is good. And so um, would you join me, um, as always, um, if you would open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 1 to 9. I think it's very fitting that um, we're looking at this story today. Uh, Genesis, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Um, it's going to be on the screen behind me, but if you'd like to follow along on your mobile device, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Genesis, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. This is the reading of God's word. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we dive into God's word. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you as we open up your word in the midst of all that is going on in our world. Would you tune our ears and our hearts uh, to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust our lives and this time into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, well, as you know, um, if you've been with us for a little bit, we're in this year-long series called Childlike Wonder, where we are journeying through all the stories in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a children's Bible. We have some available uh, at the info table. And, and just so you know, all the sermon titles this year um, are going to correspond with the titles of their respective story in the book. Okay, so I didn't make these titles up, A Giant Staircase to Heaven. Okay, some of the titles get really, um, 
yeah, they're a little funny, but um, just know that um, they correspond with the titles in the book. Um, but uh, as you know, we're in the book of Genesis, and the last couple of weeks have been a little bit depressing. Uh, we looked first at the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. Um, then last week, we looked at Noah and the flood in Genesis 6, and we're just going to keep the depressing texts uh, rolling today um, with this very familiar story of the Tower of Babel uh, in what scholars refer to as the last of the three um, universal judgments of God that kind of sets the stage for the entire storyline of the Bible after that. And just a quick recap, in Genesis 1, God creates this perfect world, a world full of goodness and beauty and peace, a world without violence, poverty, war, anxiety, depression, a world where humans live in perfect harmony with each other and with God. But in Genesis 3, something terrible happens. Humanity says, we don't need God to tell us what's good. We're going to decide for ourselves what's good and what's not good. We're going to do things our way. And this decision unleashes a devastating cycle of rebellion that begins to destroy everything and everyone God created. And at some point, things get so bad that God is like, I have to do something about this. So in Genesis 6, which we looked at last week, God sends a flood, basically presses the reset button, and he begins to recreate the world, this time with a man named Noah. And he gives Noah and his family the exact same command he gives Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with God's goodness and his love. And this is where we find ourselves at the beginning of Genesis 11. And the way Genesis 11 opens is with these words. Look at the first two verses. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And then in verse 2 we read, As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And the author is being very intentional with the way he's telling this story. If you read through the book of Genesis, one of the things you'll notice is that there's this recurring pattern. That whenever there's eastward movement, it usually means it's a move away from the presence of God. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin and they get banished from the Garden of Eden, we read that they travel eastward. In Genesis 4, after Cain kills his brother Abel in cold, cold blood, we read that he's driven from the land out of the presence of the Lord and he settles in a place east of Eden. And so the fact that Genesis 11 begins with people moving eastward is already hinting at what's coming. It's hinting at the pool, the default posture of the human heart towards self-preservation, towards self-fulfillment, towards self-glorification, the default posture which is to run from the presence of God, to live outside of his purpose and his will, to seek meaning and security and fulfillment apart from him. And this is exactly what happens here. In verse 4 we read that the people say to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Is there any verse in the Bible that better encapsulates the human condition and where we are as a people today than that? Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And the idea of a city is significant here because in the ancient world, people built cities primarily to protect themselves from external threats. So from enemies, from wild animals, and sometimes, as we see in this case, from God himself. If you notice why these people want to build this city, we read that it's because they don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. They don't want to do what God commanded them to do, to be fruitful and to multiply. They say, 
we're going to do it our way. They have their own agenda. They believe they know what's best for themselves. So rather than live according to God's will for their lives, they want to build their own empires. Not your kingdom come, your will be done. It's my kingdom come, my will be done. This heart posture that has plagued humanity since the very beginning. This is the spirit of Babel. This is the spirit that is present uh, in every single evil that we see in our society. This is the spirit that is present in racism, in white supremacy, in Christian nationalism, in all the injustices that you see in our world today, in war, in corporate greed, and the list goes on. And I don't have to convince you that the spirit of Babel is alive and well in 2023. There was an article in The Atlantic written last year by Jonathan Haidt, and the title of the article was Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Okay, it's a great title. And it's a fascinating article because it basically uses the story of the Tower of Babel as a metaphor of what's happened in America over the past decade. And he basically points to 2011 as the year that humanity began to rebuild the Tower of Babel. And 2011 was this moment in history when it felt like we were closer than ever to being one people, right? You had the internet in every home. You had smartphones in every hand. And all of a sudden, with the advent of social media, you had this revolutionary form of communication that was supposed to bring the whole world together, and so we began to build. And we began to build and build and build. Soon, people had the power to become their own brands. They had the power to create their own content, to grow their own personal platforms, and the tower grew, and it grew, and it grew. Soon, Facebook introduced something called the like button and the share button, Soon Twitter introduced something called the retweet button, which basically introduced the phenomenon of virality. You could now reach thousands, millions of people with one click of a button. Soon we added smart algorithms that could predict and tailor content to people's preferences. So now you had the ability to grow your kingdoms at unprecedented rates. You could now target specific audiences and wield unthinkable power over people's emotions, their voting habits, and ultimately their view of reality. And what you had at the end of it all was not one people like they promised, but an utter shattering of community and a complete fragmentation of society. Red and blue, Democrat, Republican, left and right, liberal and conservative, completely unable to communicate with and understand each other, exactly what you get at the end of Genesis 11. Humans, we don't learn. We've been doing the same things for thousands of years. We just have more tools to do it now. But you see, the more we try to build our own utopias, the more fragmented we become. We see the same spirit alive and well in Los Angeles. This is a city where people literally flock here from all over the world to do what? To make a name for themselves. To be admired, to be respected, to be remembered, to build their version of the good life, a life of security, meaning, and fulfillment. We see this spirit in the church where you have pastors and leaders operating more like CEOs than they do like shepherds who are more interested in building beautiful structures, furthering their own political agendas, growing their own organizations than they are about embodying the values of Jesus. You know, it's very interesting. Last year, I had our staff do an exercise 
where it was, it's like a sailboat exercise, where I asked uh, all of our staff members to uh, identify what they felt were the biggest potential roadblocks to citizens becoming the type of church we believe we're called to be. And they had a lot of different answers, but you know what one common answer they had across the board? They said, the growth. The growth is a problem. And it's very ironic, right? Because for most people on the outside, this is what we hear most when people say, things must be going really well at the church because you're growing so fast. And we realize when you have a church that is growing extremely quickly, you realize there's this great temptation to build our own version of the Tower of Babel. Every day I have to ask myself, what are we even trying to build here? The word city is baked into the name of our church, citizens. What kind of city are we building? Are we building a city for ourselves? Or are we building a city that truly reflects the values of Jesus? You see, the spirit of Babel doesn't just reside out there somewhere. It resides in every single one of us. You and I may not want to admit it, but I, I guarantee you that every person sitting here, every day we're faced with the temptation to build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. We're all trying to achieve a certain kind of life in an effort to prove our lives matter. For some of us, the bricks of choice are our career. For some of us, there are degrees. For some of us, it's our relationships or our reputation. These things we build our lives upon in hopes that they will fill the emptiness you and I feel so deeply. But if this story tells us anything, it's that when you build your life upon anything other than Jesus, the result is always utter brokenness and fragmentation. One of my favorite movies of all time that I can't, it's very hard for me to watch is Requiem for a Dream. It's a movie um, that came out, I think in 2001, and it's a harrowing film uh, that follows four individuals who all have their own vision of the good life. And in their relentless pursuit of that life, they all get deep into an addiction to drugs that ends up destroying themselves and all their relationships. And in the final scene of the movie, you have this like beautiful soundtrack playing in the back. But the, but the final scene is utterly heartbreaking because you see the full unraveling of each of these characters, of everything that they held dear, of every relationship in their life. You see them as a shell of themselves. These people who once had such big dreams for their lives, who had no idea they were building their own towers of Babel, where even when you win, you lose. When you build your life on your career, when you give everything to get to the top, to get to that next salary bracket, to get to that position, you will stop at nothing to achieve that goal. And guess what? You may actually do it. You may actually achieve that goal, but at what cost? Because there is a cost. There's always a cost. Maybe you didn't get to see your kids grow up. Maybe you had to stab some people in the back. Maybe you lost your marriage. There will always be a cost to building a life on anything other than Jesus. The theologian N.T. Wright was once asked, how is your ministry doing? And you know what he said? He said, ask my wife. I can't tell you. People on the outside seems like it's successful. Ask my family what, what they think. When you build your life on anything other than Christ, 
All you get is more brokenness and more fragmentation. There's nothing worse than actually achieving the life you always wanted and realizing it's still not enough. Some people say there's only one thing worse than failing in life. It's succeeding at something God never called you to do. You know, it's very interesting that in verse 5, the author of Genesis then writes, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that people were building, right? It's a, this, like, subtle flex, right? Because he's showing us the triviality of what human beings try to build for themselves. It's like, for all their effort, they're getting all their resources, resources together, let's build this tower that's going to reach the top of the heavens, and it says the Lord has still had to come down. Because in his eyes, these things, as grand as this tower was, they're just a speck of dust to God. We work so hard to build something that we think is so grand and so beautiful, not realizing that at the end of the day, our greatest achievements are just specks to God. God's like, that's cute, man. It's great. And so God comes down and he says in verse 6, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And you hear again the echoes of God's Trinitarian nature there. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. And you read this, and the first time I read this, the first time I thought, oh, so God must be threatened because he's saying, ooh, if we keep, let them, if, if we keep let, letting them build, like, who knows what they can accomplish on their own? But we know that he can't possibly be threatened because in the very next verse, we know what God is capable of doing. What is God saying when he says, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God is saying, I know where this goes. I know how this story ends. We've seen this before. I gotta stop this now. As we saw in the story of the flood, as much as this is God's divine judgment, this is also God's divine mercy. You know, sometimes when things don't go the way we plan in life and we think, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Throw me a bone, God. This is the one thing I've been praying for for a long time. You know how much I need this right now. Do you know that sometimes the greatest disappointments in our lives can be God's greatest acts of mercy toward us? Because sometimes allowing us to continue to build our lives on something other than him is the worst, most unloving thing a good father could do. I still remember in my early 20s, I wanted nothing more than to make it in music. You know, I was out there every single night playing open mic nights to nobody. I was playing in snowstorms. I, I, I gave my entire life to pursue this dream, right? Opportunity after opportunity, closed door after closed door. I was like, God, just give me this. I got to prove this to someone. I got to prove to my parents that it was worth it for me to lead, like, let go of my education and do this. But I realized I was building my life on my identity as a musician. And it was so hard and it was so embarrassing for me to tell people, hey, like, I don't know, I, I got to eat and I'm starving to death, so I'm going to start this other business. But I realized looking back on that, that perhaps God was closing doors and confounding my plans, which was so frustrating for me. 
only because he wanted me to know that there was no place better to be than in his loving embrace, completely dependent on him. I'm sure those building the Tower of Babel did not see this as an act of God's mercy. I mean, they had big plans. This is what they wanted to do. But it's because they were blind to what they were doing, just as you and I are often blind to our own idols of pride and our own idols of selfishness. Now, I can see that some of you are like, wait, does this mean that I can't pursue my dreams? That God's always going to confound my plans, that I'm not allowed to be ambition. That's a big misconception about this story, that it's an indictment on ambition or success, that human beings should not be ambitious in their pursuits. And this is such a mischaracterization of this story. One thing, like, as I was reading Genesis 1 and 2, one thing I, I, I thought to myself, man, I think it's so interesting that when God created the world, he didn't make it, create it ready-made. Like, you know, he created trees. He didn't create paper or chairs or tables. He gave us trees. Then he created human beings and said, you do something with those trees. I'm going to give you the raw materials. You co-create with me. This is not going to be a passive existence. I want you to actually have meaningful work to do. I want you to be ambitious. God says, I've given you these talents and these gifts and these passions for a reason. Go do it. Go, go serve with excellence. So the problem isn't our ambition. In fact, it's not even that our ambition is too large. It's that our ambition is too small. These people in Genesis 11 have such a small vision for their life. They're trying to build this city for themselves so they can stay in this small little enclave and be comfortable for the rest of their lives. And God is like, I have so much bigger plans for you than your little anthill achievements. People often say, man, I've been praying for God to bless me and maybe my prayers are too big for God. No, most often our prayers are too small. We have too small of a vision for our lives. We say, Lord, I just want to get married. At this point, I'll take anyone. Next person who walks in the door, I'm taking him, right? Please, Lord. And I believe God is saying, have a bigger vision for your life. God is like, my plans for you are so much bigger than that. And you know how we know this? In the very next chapter, on the very next page in Genesis 12, we're introduced to a man named Abram. And God appears to him. And you know what the first thing he says is? I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will make your name great. The greatest tragedy of the story of Babel is that this name that humans thought they needed to pry out of the hands of God, this is a name God was intending to give them from the very beginning. The people are like, let's make something of our life. And God says, I'm going to make something of your life. Give me a chance to make something of your life. I have so much bigger plans than you could even think or imagine. And anything I do is going to be way better than anything you could build on your own. Because the name I give you is the only name that lasts. 
The security I give you is a security that isn't dependent on your relationship status or your financial circumstances. Build your life on me and you will have the life you are deeply longing for. A life of meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And you know what I find both comforting and terrifying about this story? At the end of it all, despite all of humanity's attempts to be their own God, God still accomplishes what he set out to do from the very beginning. The last thing we read was that God scattered them over the whole earth. That's what he said. That's what he told them to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Except at the end, it says God scattered them over the whole earth. He was like, you don't want to do it? That's okay. I'm still going to do it. In fact, I'm going to use your very mistakes to accomplish my purposes in you and for the entire world. This is comforting because it reminds us that there is nothing we can do to thwart the plans of God in our lives. We can't, unru- we can't outrun the purpose of God. We can't outrun the will of God. God is going to keep his promises with or without our help. But you know why it's terrifying? Because it's basically God saying, either humble yourself or I'm going to humble you. <laughs> either way, the end result is going to be the same. So you can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. That's why I never pray, Lord, humble me. It's a very scary prayer. Don't pray that prayer. Just humble yourself and make it easy on everyone. And really so many of the stories in the Bible that come after this one are stories about human beings choosing the hard way. Stubbornly believing that they can find significance and security, which are such good things apart from God. A posture that leads to more brokenness and more despair. But here's the good news, friends. Because after thousands of years of human beings building their own version of Babel, God comes down once again, but this time in a very different way. He doesn't come down to see the city and the tower. He comes down to become one of them. He comes down to dwell with his people And he puts on skin and bones and he gives us a blueprint of what a good life looks like. That it isn't found in a lucrative career or a beautiful home or a spouse with 2.5 kids. Jesus had none of these things. He was single. He was a homeless, blue-collar worker. But somehow he lived the most meaningful life ever lived. How? Simply by abiding in the Father's presence and doing the Father's will. That's it. When Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, not my will, but yours be done, he's tearing down every tower of Babel humans ever built. He's toppling over every kingdom that says, my will be done. When he says, not as I will, but as you will. And on the cross, Jesus shows us that the way we get access to God is not by humans building up toward the heavens, but by God descending to the depths of hell. On the cross of Jesus Christ, we find all the approval and all the security and all the validation we could ever need. And we don't have to strive and claw for these things anymore because they're already ours in him. 
And when we're able to grasp the fact that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ, it's only then that you and I can truly live out God's purpose for our life to be a blessing to others. You see, when your singular aim in life is no longer to make a name for yourself, but to make his name great, you learn to live with open hands. You begin to see everything you have as a means not to build your own kingdom, but to serve others, to build others up, to embody Christ's love to a world that desperately needs it. So many of us are so obsessed with crafting the perfect life for ourselves that we don't see all that God desires to do in and through us. Our ambitions aren't too big. They're too small. A few weeks ago, I hit a big milestone in my life. I hit the big four zero. I was dreading it. Um, I was like hanging on to 39, you know, even like a couple of days before they were like, happy birthday. I was like, don't say that. It's not, it's not I'm not 40 yet. Um, but it happened, and it's funny, like, when you turn 40, um, you all of a sudden think you have all this wisdom. So, you know, these days I've been saying to my kids every day, hey, come here, let me tell you something. They're like, are you dying? I'm like, no, I'm just 40, okay, and I, ha I have wisdom, you know. And um, when, when, I hit these, when you hit these milestones, they're, they're kind of these opportunities for you to reflect back on your life. And on my 40th birthday, um, I, I wrote, took some time to write in my journal and I wrote down all the different plans I had for my life when I was a kid or when I was in my 20s, like the direction I thought my life was heading, the script that I had written out for myself, all the things that I was supposed to achieve and accomplish. And I realized that some of those things happened and a lot of those things didn't happen. Part of my life did go according to script and a lot of my life I could never have dreamed it up even if I tried. But one thing I wrote down and one thing I realized was that no matter what season of life I was in, no matter where life has taken me, there was only one place where I have felt most like myself, where I felt the most secure, the most seen, the most at peace, and it was always in the presence of God. I understand now why King David, who reached the height who reached the absolute, absolute pinnacle of human achievement, somehow still said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Someone who had built, to some extent, his own Tower of Babel, and yet at the end of his life, he says, one thing I ask, and that which will I will seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon his beauty. And this is what I prayed for myself, that Lord, in this next decade, may my life be marked by more of you. More than building a successful ministry, more than sending my kids to good schools, more than building my own version of this Tower of Babel, more than anything else, give me Jesus. Like the song says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And I pray that would be your heart as well, that we would fall so deeply in love with Christ that at some point you and I would not even care whether or not everything we dreamed of or wanted actually came to pass because we would know that everything would ultimately pale in comparison to knowing Christ 
and being known by him. Let's pray. I want to give us a moment uh, to respond to God's word today. And maybe a question we can ask ourselves is, what is it that you're building? What is it that you're asking your work or your marriage or your degree or your reputation to give you that only God can give you? The invitation in this story is to turn from those things because only God can fill you. Only God can give you what you're longing for. That would be our prayer. Help me to know you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word today, and we confess that many of us, we're not so different from the people in Genesis 11. So many of us find ourselves trying to build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves. So many of us have a vision of a good life that we think will give us ultimate joy and peace and satisfaction. Would you remind us today that there is no better place to be than in your presence and that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the promise is that we now have access to that presence all the time. So God, help us to resurrender our lives to you, knowing that it is your desire to make our name great and to bless others through our lives. Help us to have a bigger vision for our lives than just to build our own kingdoms, but to partner with you to make all things new in our homes, in our cities, and ultimately the world. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're able, I'm going to invite us to stand. Let's just respond to this word by singing these two songs of praise. Let's worship together. <laughs>